hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. I'm in Isaiah chapter 45 and reading verses 1 to 8. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. I will call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. And thanks be to God for his word. And Most of every Christian I've ever met believes in the sovereignty of God. And yet most uh, Christians that I meet see the sovereignty of God as a position, that God is the sovereign. He's at the apex of everything. He's first. He's foremost. Uh, but sovereignty is more than a position. Uh, it speaks to God's unhindered actions in all things, that he rules and governs over everything, and that everything that happens is ultimately attributable to him because he's the ultimate cause. He's the first cause of all things. And so again, there are two issues that uh, come to play here. Obviously, God is king. Obviously, he is sovereign in terms of a position. Uh, but it is more proper to see sovereignty as the fact that God is unrestrained and free to accomplish whatever he wills to accomplish and to do. Uh, so matter that uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks to uh, this morning, and we begin with the reality that God is uh, sovereign uh, in his word. Our text uh, begins, thus says the Lord, and then following that, the content of what God says is an appointment of Cyrus, uh, and Isaiah calls him uh, the anointed of God. So he's speaking prophetically, uh, about uh, the anointment of a ruler that's going to come and effect deliverance for the children of Israel. Uh, it means, of course, uh, in that regard, that uh, God is sovereign over the future. Uh, the future is under his control. If he uh, can speak prophetically and foretell the future as he does, then it means he's sovereign over the future. 
a comfort to us because it means that he is sovereign over your future and all the things that happen in your future. All of your tomorrows, he is sovereign over. He's sovereign in his choice and that he anoints Cyrus, who is the uh, next leader uh, over, if you will, the children of Israel. They're going into Babylonian captivity. Uh, that's a terrible time in uh, the history of the children of Israel. And guess what? God is sovereign over that. He ordained it because of their idolatry. And then uh, he's going to ordain uh, the Medo-Persian ruler here named Cyrus to come and to set them free. Meaning, again, uh, he is free to act and he is unrestrained in his actions. Uh, the word uh, anointing is uh, most often used in the scriptures of prophets, priests, and kings uh, who are the agents of God. But who is God anointing here? A pagan ruler. Yes, God can even anoint and use a pagan ruler to affect his will. Uh, that's important uh, because uh, it's going to become quite obvious in following texts that the nation of Israel is not real happy with that. Uh, they don't want a pagan ruler. They want, they want a new Moses. Uh, they want uh, uh, someone else to come, uh, perhaps uh, a greater David, uh, to reinstitute uh, the messianic reign and to restore the glories of Israel. And yet God is sovereign to use a pagan. By the way, I uh, know from good authority that you interact as a Christian with pagans throughout your life. In many cases, they rule over you. They, maybe they're on your city council. Maybe they're your mayors. Maybe they're the president. I don't know. But you know what? They rule under the aegis of God because he is sovereign. And God here anoints a pagan ruler who's going to come and affect the deliverance. And God needs no permission, and he asks for no approval. It's a good reminder. Sometimes we, uh, we think that God is the servant in uh, the economic affairs of life, uh, and uh, we ought to be able to use him as a genie uh, to accomplish what we want to happen in our lives. It doesn't work that way. Uh, God is going to appoint someone that Israel is going to become profoundly unhappy with, and he doesn't and he doesn't need to seek their permission or ask for their approval because uh, he is sovereign. More importantly, it's interesting here that God is intimate with Cyrus. The text reads, I've taken him by the right hand. Uh, holding hands uh, oftentimes is a sign of intimacy in our culture. Uh, well, I think we can see it that way here. God is holding hands with a pagan king. How can that happen? It can happen because God so wills it. And God expresses it uh, as a testimony of who he is, uh, the great king. Uh, the outcome, again, in the text, uh, prophetic, is that he will subdue nations, disarm kings, and, of course, open doors going to make things happen. But we know from the happening of those events that behind them all is God. We know that the last Babylonian emperor was totally unprepared for the invasion, and there is evidence that suggests that the priests of Marduk 
had the gates of the city of Babylon open to him. But behind it all was the rule of God and the will of God, if you will, the sovereignty of God, not just in position, but in terms of actions. All of the actions of the success of Cyrus are now attributable to God. So that God is sovereign in his appointments and in affecting, verses 2 to 3, his success. Notice, notice the future tense, verse 2. I will go before you. I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze, and I will cut through the iron bars, and I will give you the treasures of darkness. It's a promise of God affecting the future, giving to Cyrus success in his invasion. If you will, God is in the lead. Uh, much of this, of course, are actions that God did before Israel in their invasion of Canaan. God's simply going to reduplicate what he did formally in giving Joshua the land, and now he's going to give a Persian king uh, the land so that he can set the children of Israel free. It's interesting to me that you read the text, I will make straight, uh, your way. Uh, that is a verse that's used in Isaiah chapter 40 uh, that finds its way into the New Testament of what we're to do in the coming of Christ to make his way straight. So again, God is uh, doing to a pagan what he does to his own, and he is free to do that in light of who he is. God will shatter the gates and all defenses, and lastly, God will give him the Babylonian treasury meaning that Cyrus is going to have unprecedented success. And now we know why. God gave it to him. Certainly by application in all of our lives, we experience sometimes success in life, sometimes great joy, sometimes doors open for us. Now we know why. God is sovereign behind it all. But it is just as true that sometimes we experience sadness and distress and sometimes doors shut. And now we know why. God is sovereign. He's the great king who not just has a position, but who is behind every event in life. Not necessarily immediately, but ultimately as the great sovereign king. God's uh, sovereignty is also purposeful. That goes without saying. It's clear here. If you look at Isaiah chapter 45 and uh, uh, the last part of verse 3, in order that you may know that it is I, that God is in control. Of course, Cyrus never knew God salvifically, but he may have had some awareness of the prophet Isaiah uh, prophetically announcing his victory. So it's purposeful. God is acting in a purposeful way. Cyrus had great success, and now he knows why, and more importantly, we know why. And that is true in all of the realm of civil government, uh, that God is sovereign, God is in control, is always going to advance his purposes for his own glory and, of course, to edify his people. We know that from Scripture. And we know that that is the outcome of all of history, 
that God is going to glorify himself. He's going to edify his people and advance them. So all of history, of course, is under the rule of God, and it's purposeful for his glory and for his people. Of course, immediately that ought to teach all of us to be humble. Because all of our successes and all of our failures ultimately are attributable to God. and We should be humble before him in light of who he is. Uh, it is, uh, I think, a lesson that ought to be learned, uh, though I suspect it will not be learned upon all of our civil governments. Uh, they are always boasting about their successes. They little boast about their failures, of course, to be sure. They want to blame it on someone else, but it is all attributable to God, so we ought to all walk circumspectly before him because we are his creatures. And as Christians, we are his children. And we know that whatever comes our way comes purposefully uh, to advance again his kingdom, uh, his glory in our hearts as we serve him. It's purposeful in the sense of it's done for the children of Israel, verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. It's interesting, one of the great lessons that comes out of the Protestant Reformation is the recognition that civil rulers ultimately ought to prosper the church. Who cares about that today? But nonetheless, they will give an account as to how they treated God's children and that God will hold them accountable. But every civil governor, again, is to prosper the church to establish peace that the church might prosper, and they will give an account to God for the same. It's instruction, of course, uh, that civil rulers govern in civil life, spiritual rulers govern in spiritual life, but all under the aegis of God as the one true, great, and only sovereign Lord. Sovereignty, of course, is exclusively a divine prerogative. Verses 5 to 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, that is not an attribute that you can attribute to any other governor, ruler. Only the Lord has that title and that unrestrained freedom of action and everyone else is totally excluded. That God is the one and only sovereign. God is the sole independent person in force in all of life. He alone is free to manifest his will positively or negatively and unaccountably so, for he answers to no one. Christians most generally would say, well, God is sovereign over the good things that happen to me, but it's so with everything that happens. Notice, notice the merism in verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. It means that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun and everything in between. 
God is accomplishing His will. Nothing escapes His sovereign rule. Nothing is outside of His control. That all the actions of the day and night, for that matter, are under His government. I'm not suggesting that it is always immediately, but certainly ultimately that is true. And that's the third purpose, that all men might know. Uh, we know that this is true even of those who do not know Jesus Christ and who belong to a church, as he had so appointed, because natural theology is stamped upon the soul of every man or woman that has ever come into this world. They know intuitively that they are the creatures of the Most High God. I admit to you that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, but notice they are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness because it's stamped upon their souls as to who they are and who their creator is. Verse 7 is just as explicit. Again, notice the merisms, the figure of speech. Again, an acknowledgement that two extremes are set forth, but the figure of speech means everything in between them. I'm the one forming light and creating darkness. Causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, if we were just to say the one forming light and causing well-being, we, we, well, of course, that's true, but the author doesn't stop there, does he? He says even calamity and darkness, God creates and is sovereign over. What a great measure to me personally, how comforting that is as a Christian. That even though bad things happen to bad people, it's that God is sovereign. Behind them all, as a Christian, we know that he governs all things that touch us, good and the bad, to edify us, to strengthen us, and to remind us of his glorious presence. I'm not suggesting that we're necessarily oftentimes happy about that, but we ought to find great comfort and solace in it because it means that nothing is outside of his control. And that even when bad things happen, He's behind it all, and he turns it for our good. The great text that all of us know by heart, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good because he is sovereign over all things. Again, light and darkness forms and creates, doing peace and well-being and creating calamity is the prerogative of God. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Great reminder. Uh, the answer is here. I, the Lord, do all of these things. The sovereignty, of course, in that regard is total, universal, and absolute. It's a difficult, I think, uh, attribute of God to wrestle with, particularly as it pertains to evil. Uh, but we do not live in a dualistic universe. God is not in a wrestling match with Satan. Satan is but his messenger boy to accomplish the will of God. Oftentimes, that's uh, very mysterious to us. But it is comforting to know that God is sovereign and that in that he is sovereign, we can walk by faith 
because whatever he does for the church, he does for the church to edify it and to strengthen it and to advance his purposes and his kingdom and his own glorious presence. Turn to some, uh, some texts that I think uh, reinforce this. Psalm uh, 103 in the 19th verse. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. That's God's position. But notice his actions. And his sovereignty rules over all. It's just simply the acknowledgement from the scripture that if God is not totally sovereign, then he is not God. If there is something that is out of his control, if there are mistakes in life, then again, we worship maybe a powerful person, but not a sovereign person. The scriptures affirm that we worship one who is sovereign, not only in position, but in all of the practices of life. I submit to you the ultimate reality that that ought to be one of the greatest comforts of the people of God because nothing is outside of his control. And therefore, we can wait patiently upon him, trusting and hoping in him to affect his eternal purposes, which he manifestly will do in light of who he is. Another text, uh, New Testament, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 11 also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. I understand most Christians wrestle with that. It's very difficult. I understand that we might want to erase the word all and maybe put some things. But the moment you do that, you have effaced God and his perfections and his glory. He is king over everything, and nothing happens apart from his appointments. And that is our comfort and our hope, that he does all things purposefully and for his own glory, and therefore we can be at peace with it, even though we may not understand it. All things are under the control of God, attributable to his will. No limit on his governing save himself. That God is the ultimate cause of all things. I hasten to remind you uh, that as God is sovereign, uh, we also are accountable to him because we are his creatures. He has the position and we are also his creatures and therefore we will give account to him for all things in light of who he is great text in this regard, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, uh, work out your salvation, fear and trembling. I might translate that in this vein, work out your sanctification in fear and trembling, in all in respect of who God is. Because, Paul says, it is God who has worked within you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Responsibility, chapter 12, sovereignty, verse 13. For it is God who is at work within you. We work out because God works within. If God wasn't at work within, we could work nothing for his glory. 
great reminder, two great truths, the sovereignty of God in position and practice and our ultimate responsibility to him in all things. Therefore, we should walk circumspectly in fear and trembling in light of the fact that he is the one true and only great king. He's also sovereign over spiritual blessings, verse 8. It's a reminder to us that uh, God sometimes manifests his presence in very intense ways and brings great spiritual blessings. And God is the cause of it all. But he's also the cause of spiritual dryness, difficult times, hard times, in light of who he is. Let's look what the text here principally says over his sovereignty, over spiritual blessings. Uh, the text is a prayer. Verse 8, Isaiah chapter 45. Drip down, O heavens, from above. It's calling for rain. It's a spiritual metaphor for spiritual blessings. And that the clouds pour down righteousness, that the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. It's a prayer for God to bless the actions of Cyrus the restoration of the nation, the rebuilding of the temple to affect the divine purposes of God. Isaiah is asking for God to bless the actions spiritually of Cyrus to affect the purposes of God towards his people. Again, that righteousness would fall like rain and the earth produce the fruit of salvation. A reminder to me of what? That God is sovereign over revival. Oftentimes we drive in the city of Oklahoma City and we see that a church uh, is going to have a revival week. Well, that's good. I hope they do. But again, God is sovereign over revival. Hopefully uh, uh, he'll come every Sunday. But we know not, do we? But it falls to his will, his time, his choosing. Because God controls the rain. And God controls the dispatch of his spirit to intensify his presence to awaken his people. We will at some point, the Lord willing study in the rest of the book of Isaiah, the prophet crying, why have you deserted us, O God? Why have you left us, O God? It's a terrifying reality that even over dry times in life, that God is sovereign. And yet, what do we do in dry and difficult times in life? We continue to pursue the Lord and work out our sanctification in fear and trembling in light of who he is. And if he wills to bless, he wills to bless. If he wills to act negatively towards us, it is the will of God because of who he is. That God is sovereign over light and over darkness. Great reminder to that in uh, the book of uh, Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. And the Lord was adding to the church. Who adds to the church? The Lord does in light of who he is. That God is sovereign. The prayer here for divine revival Again, this acknowledgement of uh, the majesty of God who is sovereign over expanding his own presence in the world through his people. Well, of course, uh, that's the history of Cyrus. The greater fulfillment is, of course, in Christ. Cyrus is merely a type of Christ, the majesty of Christ who will come utterly in incredible swiftness and victory, establish his will, 
plunder the treasuries of heaven and again accomplish his eternal purposes and salvation. That God anoints his son as the last Messiah. I reminded you earlier that uh, God calls Cyrus Messiah, but the greater Messiah is his son, the Lord Jesus. He is the true, ultimate fulfillment of what is portrayed in the civil governor, Cyrus. The anointing occurs in the beginning of his public ministry, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is baptized, and immediately God speaks. If you have your New Testaments, and I trust you do, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17, because God is formally anointing his son in his public ministry. Again, third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verses 16 and 17, the anointing of the Son of God by God the Father. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and behold, a voice out of the heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. It occurs in another form in Matthew chapter 17 as our Lord begins to turn towards Jerusalem and death the approbation of God the Father upon God the Son based upon his willingness to go to the end and to sacrifice himself for his people. And our Lord, even over that, is sovereign. Have you ever puzzled over uh, Jesus uh, turning to Pilate saying, the authority you have comes from above? What is about to happen to the Son of God is the most evil event in all of history. And Jesus is telling Pilate that God is sovereign over it all. Incredible, the majesty of the Son of God. But now we know that he is the greater fulfillment of, of Cyrus. Uh, his sovereignty over salvation is uh, total and uh, absolute. So a couple of uh, New Testament uh, allusions by allusions, I mean that New Testament authors rely on Isaiah chapter 45 uh, to expand our understanding of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the first, uh, again, it's an echo of Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1, is Revelation, the third chapter, verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts. That's the allusion to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1 of Cyrus that the gates will be opened and they can't be shut. In other words, he's going to experience unprecedented advancement in his military conquest. Here, supplied to Christ, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds, Before I, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. It becomes applicable to the church at uh, Philadelphia, uh, the church at large in terms of salvation and what and who Christ is. But notice the sovereignty. Who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. 
the prophet Isaiah uh, also uses this concept in earlier part of his prophecy in the 22nd uh, chapter to speak of a civil governor. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 22 as we try to come to an understanding of the fullness of the reality of everything that this means. Uh, we have a measure of what it means before Cyrus, uh, but we can gain some further insight uh, as Isaiah is probably also alluding to his own writings in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. The immediate reference here is to Eliakim, who was appointed by God as the de facto prime minister uh, over Judah. Uh, but Eliakim now is a type of Christ, just as Cyrus is a type of Christ. And John alludes to the text in a more intense and escalated fulfillment because he applies it to our Lord's universal sovereignty as King Messiah over every aspect of salvation in that Jesus controls entrance and denial into the kingdom of God. He opens the door of salvation, but he also can close it in light of who he is. The, uh, the Gospel of John uh, speaks to this in a very indirect way. Uh, John chapter 10 Jesus uh, calls himself uh, the door. John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But he also can close that door. Look, if you will, at verses 26 to 29. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He's telling his antagonists that they can't come in because they don't belong to him they are not his sheep. Terrifying prospect, is it not, of the sovereignty of our Lord. He denies in salvation. He acknowledges they do not believe because they are not of his sheep. Ah, but the great promise for the church. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of the hand of my Father. The sovereignty of Christ saving his people forever. In one fell swoop, he opens the door to his sheep and he closes it to all else. It's a reminder that uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, ultimately your uh, entire eternity hinges upon Christ, either opening or closing the door. How do you uh, come to know him? You believe upon him. You repent of your sins. You acknowledge him as Savior, meaning that he has opened the door to you and welcomes you in. And even that, of course, attributable to God opening your heart and enabling you by his divine power to believe. Again, the sovereignty of the Lord, opening or closing. I suspect that many of us have not thought of the Lord in just that way. Uh, but it is uh, clearly the teaching from the military conquest of Cyrus and from a civil ruler, Eliakim, who opens the door and no one can shut it 
and who shuts a door and no one can open it. And now we know the great prospect of all of life that respecting salvation, only the Lord can open it. And when he shuts it, it is shut and closed forever. The sovereignty of Jesus Christ over salvation. It means that we should see him in incredible awe and respect and give him what is his due. And it also means that if you are a Christian, you know him as your Lord and Savior. It is because he opened the door of your heart and welcomed you into his presence. If you're not a Christian, hear the word of the Lord. It falls ultimately to the sovereignty of Christ. In light of who he is, I would sue for peace. I would not let the sun go down on this day before acknowledging Christ and suing for peace and asking him for salvation and for the forgiveness of sin. But again, he is sovereign even over that. Reminder of the greatness of Christ. Uh, something of an allusion to this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. He controls, has total authority over death and hell. Certainly the sovereignty of our Lord that includes eternal punishment. Again, reminder of the gospel. You can only escape it through the forgiveness of sin and guilt in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, and he gives it to those whom he wills. It's a reminder that uh, we should all fall before him and worship him and acknowledge him if we are Christians. And if not, reckon that your entire life is under his sovereign control. In light of who he is, flee to him and come to know him as Savior. And if you come to know him as Savior, you know now how it happened. He opened the door of your heart and received you unto himself. Namely, Christ is sovereign over every aspect of salvation and has total authority over hell. The other illusion, Isaiah chapter 45, uh, speaking to the treasury that Cyrus will advance into the city of Babylon and plunder its treasury uh, is uh, used by the Apostle Paul as he alludes to this text in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, speaking of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Cyrus, of course, uh, plunders the Fort Knox of Babylon. Remember when I was a student at Fort Knox, Kentucky, I drove by the great depository of uh, gold by the way, they wouldn't let me in. They were sovereign over that event. I'd like to have gone in and seen all the gold, but uh, they simply turned me away and told me that I had to move with great celerity in my turning away. So I had no business there. It's interesting to me, there was an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, maybe the Daily Oklahoma this week, the great controversy, is there really a gold depository in New York City? Some people suggesting it's only a lie. Who knows? Doesn't matter to me. God owns it all anyway. 
Uh, I know there's always conspiracy theories about whether it's there, whether it's not. Again, I don't get too troubled because my heart can find comfort in the sovereignty of God. I know that men will always make a mess of things because that's what men do. But even in that, I can have comfort in light of who God is and to rejoice in my salvation because he opened the door to himself, uh, to his people. But this text, again, is also an echo of Isaiah as Christ is the greater treasury. In Christ is all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That in him, there's everything we need for salvation. It's an escalation of fulfillment from physical to spiritual wealth. And that is a lesson we desperately need to learn in our country. We oftentimes think tragically in terms of physical wealth. Do we have enough for retirement? Is there really gold bullion in uh, the Federal Reserve Depository in New York City? Uh, we should, in the church, think of spiritual wealth because knowing Christ is the greatest treasure in all of life. We live, what, four score and however many years, but eternity is forever, and Christ is the greatest of all treasuries that he owns every piece of wealth and he is the greatest of all wealth in terms of wisdom and knowledge. The limited treasury of man is of no comparison whatsoever to the unlimited treasury of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice the text, Colossians 2 and verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As the people of God, regardless of the size of your bank account, you are rich, indescribably so, because you are the heir of God and the son of God. And promise to you is all eternity. That's a treasure that the world has no concept of to its own shame. Indescribably rich beyond all measure in Jesus Christ in light of his death and resurrection. The element of, uh, of mystery, Paul calls this mystery, verse 2, God's mystery that is Christ himself, means that there's an unexpected fulfillment in identifying with Jesus to the end that Gentiles are full participants in the kingdom of God as the sons of God by faith and not the ceremonial law of Israel. full inheritance by faith in Christ of the entire treasury of heaven. Our, our world is always chasing physical wealth. The church chases wealth in Christ and we get it all. And it comes by faith, by trusting Christ absent of the ceremonial law of Israel. We don't have to engage in their ceremony. We receive it all by faith in Christ. The greatest wealth of all time. Not Fort Knox, not the Federal Reserve. It's not the treasury of the United States government. It's not all of the treasuries of the world. It's but a penny compared to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
lessen your hold on pennies, advance your hold on the Savior, that you might know him and all of the treasures of heaven open to you through Christ as Savior. Well, all of these texts remind us, do they not, of the sovereignty of our Lord. In the civil government of Cyrus, in the government of Christ, the great sovereign king over all of salvation, and, of course, authority over hell itself. That is the God that we worship. That's the God that we serve. That is the God that we bow before. That is the God that we confess, and we know no other because there is no other, Isaiah tells us. There is no one else like this God who has called us to himself as his sons. It's important that we know who God is. It's important we understand this theology because it's essential to faith and life and waiting. Waiting until that time, until all the physical glories of heaven itself reign upon the earth in the coming of Christ. And we will know the fullness of the glory of everlasting life. Not a Christian, you'll never know that. I can only invite you as a preacher of the gospel. If the only way to that riches is through Christ as Savior, go to him, ask him to save you, and may his smiles break upon you in the greatest of all possible wealth and salvation. And the reminder that as the sons of God, even when dark clouds form over our lives, the Lord controls the wind and the rain. But as his sons, Everything that happens to us will be for our good and for his glory. And therefore, in the interim time before heaven breaks forth, we can wait upon him in light of who he is. So Jesus also holds the office of sovereign. He's able to impose his will and freedom and power to save his people and to bless his people however he chooses. In him you are favored in him you are safe, and in him every dark cloud will in its own time turn to gentle rain for the advancement of his glory in our hearts and in the world in which we live. And may God bless each of us with this understanding to the praise and worship of him who alone is God.